have your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn with me once more to the second chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 2. I want to return to this passage that we've been looking at really over the last couple of weeks, Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. And in this passage, we have really the testimony of the early church. The things that the early church gave themselves to are very obvious in this passage of Scripture. The church is born at Pentecost, and it's a remarkable thing. Uh, Two or three years ago, there was a fascinating story that came out of the United Kingdom about a set of twin boys who were born prematurely. And the names of these uh, baby boys were Dylan and Daniel Zamunya, and they were born a full 15 weeks early and placed in a neonatal unit. Uh, there in, uh, in, in London, I believe it was. Well, at birth, Dylan, baby Dylan weighed only two pounds, while Daniel was even tinier uh, and weighed only a little over a pound and a half. Dylan was the stronger of the two babies, and as such, he showed signs of improvement and growth, but little Daniel struggled. Within a week, the medical staff there in the hospital became concerned uh, that Daniel's condition was quickly deteriorating. And so they brought baby Dylan uh, to Daniel's side for what they thought was one last time, that the two little brothers could be together. The twins spent just five minutes together in the incubator with their little bodies huddled next to each other. Within a couple of hours, the doctors were absolutely astounded because Daniel's condition had stabilized and his oxygen support was cut in half. It was incredible. Somehow, just by being close by, baby Dylan managed to help baby Daniel. And it wasn't long until baby Daniel was taken off the ventilator completely And for the next several weeks, hospital staff kept Dylan nearby until Daniel was strong enough to be alone. Now, that's a remarkable story, and you've heard stories like that uh, before. There's something powerful about the human touch, isn't there? Uh, Medical science tells us that the human touch can actually make a difference in a person's medical condition. Just a simple touch from someone else can raise the hemoglobin, uh, can even lower blood pressure. Studies have even shown that children who receive physical affection from their parents are often more secure, more confident than children who don't. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because God has wired within humanity a sense of relational need. There's something about being in the presence of someone else You know, I think back on creation, all that God created way back in the beginning, God described as being very good. And the one thing that God created, God said was not good. He said it's not good that the man should be alone. God has wired humanity with this capacity to be relational creatures. Uh, We've been created to have a relationship with Almighty God. We've also been created to have a relationship with other people who've been made in God's image. And there's something powerful, something productive, uh, something uh, remarkable 
about being in the presence of someone else. Human touch is a powerful thing. In fact, I think that's why Jesus, several times in the Gospels, as you read through the life and the ministry of Jesus, we constantly read of where he was always reaching out with a touch of affection on someone. Even those who were the undesirables of society. Uh, The Bible talked about how Jesus uh, would even show a sign of affection and would touch even those that have leprosy those that the rest of society kept at arm's length. Jesus went out of his way to show affection. Uh, And the reason is because human life has been created relationally. And folks, listen, that's why the church of Jesus Christ is so very important. You might could say that the church is the incubator for believers. It's like a fireplace where one member's life touches another member's life And as a result, spiritual fires are stoked. And so that's why this passage here in Acts chapter 2 is such a very important passage of Scripture. And I want to come back to this passage where we've been the last couple of weeks because the end of Acts chapter 2 shows us what the fellowship of the early church was like. And the picture that we're given here is a very simple picture, but at the same time, it's also a very powerful picture. You might could say that it's in this passage we're presented with the basics of body life. And uh, these basics should be true of every local congregation. And what I've really wanted you to see is that these believers here, these brand new Christians, the early church, their faith in Jesus Christ is being visibly expressed outwardly through a new rhythm of life. And the point here is that new birth always expresses itself in new life. And there will be evidence in a person's life if the Spirit of God has come to take up residence in their life. And so I want to continue preaching from this thought this morning, outward proof of inward faith or outward proof of the inward life of God. You've got your Bible there in Acts chapter 2, verse number 40. Let me invite you to stand with me as we read this passage. Verse number 40. The Bible says, with many other words, Peter bore witness. And he continued to exhort the crowd on the day of Pentecost. And here's what he was saying. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In this passage of Scripture, we've got the record of the early church in the way that the new life of God that had come to take up residence in them, it manifests itself outwardly through a new way of life. So Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray that you speak into our hearts and lives for Christ's sake. 
Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The life of God that's possessed inwardly will always be observable in the person's life who possesses it. And that's what we're able to see here at the close of Acts chapter 2 as these new believers are brought into fellowship with one another. The church is born and their faith is expressed outwardly. Now, I've shown you how there are at least four major proofs of this faith that's demonstrated here in this text, and um, those proofs involve, to begin with, separation from the world. Uh, We looked at this last week. Uh, The Bible says that Peter is preaching, and he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Be saved from a world that's bent on going its own way apart from God. And so there are some 3,000 who believe the message of the gospel. They repent, they believe, they're baptized, the church is born. And that word church is a word that means call out. The called out ones. Ecclesia is the Greek word that's used all throughout the New Testament uh, applied to the church. The church um, is men and women who've been called out of a world of darkness and has been brought into the kingdom of God's light brought in supernaturally into the body of Christ. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. God's always intended for believers to be different. What you find here in Acts chapter 2 is a brand new community of faith. Uh, These believers who believe the gospel, they're brought into close fellowship with one another. They're separated from the world. They're brought into the body of Christ, and thus the church is born. Now, the second thing um, that serves as an outward proof of inward faith is dedication to the truth. They're called out of a world of darkness, brought into the kingdom of God's own Son, and then you notice in verse 42, the Bible says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They believed the gospel, and then they devote themselves to that gospel. They devote themselves to the truth of God's word. And so outward proof of inward faith Uh, there will be proof in a person's life that their life has now come under the authority of God's word. Apostolic teaching, the apostles' teaching, uh, well, that sort of represents now what we have in the 27 books of the New Testament. Believers are those who've been brought into community with one another, and the Bible serves as the basis of our authority. And so the first thing that these believers give themselves to, it's the truth of God's word the teaching, the instruction, uh, the doctrinal instruction of those apostles. Now, there's a third proof of inward faith, and the third proof is this, participation in the church. These believers in Acts 2 are separated from the world. They're dedicated to the truth of God's word, and then the rest of the chapter shows how they participate in the corporate life of the church. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to the fellowship, breaking bread together, praying together. It's this idea of being brought into a new family and they are participating in the life of that new faith family. Uh, They're individually related to one another and one life touches another life. Now, let me just say this, I love the church. The church is central in my life. The church has been central in my life since I was a small boy. I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I was seven years old. My dad led me to faith in Christ, baptized me. 
My dad was also my pastor, so really uh, from the first Sunday I was in the world, I was in church. And as a preacher's kid, I got to do fun things when the rest of the church weren't here. Whenever I was with my dad at the church, I mean, me and my sisters crawled under the pews and, you know, we ran laps around the sanctuary and that kind of thing. That's just the perks of being a PK. But the bottom line is I love the church. Uh, it was in the church that I learned how to um, read the word, learned why prayer was important, learned how to sing, learned why corporate worship was so very important. Um, now, you know that my father and mother separated when I was a teenager, and so honestly, there was a short-lived period of rebellion in my life where I kind of rebelled against God and thought I didn't want to have anything to do with the church. Dad given his life to serve the church and, and uh, kind of felt like the church was responsible for coming between my mom and my dad. That was a short-lived rebellion that didn't last very long because the Spirit of God broke me and brought me to a point of surrendering to his own call in my life and I began to get my first taste of Christian ministry. I uh, surrendered to the call to preach when I was a uh, second semester junior in high school. Began serving the church, began pastoring at 19 years old. The very first church that I began serving was a rural church in Polk County, North Carolina, uh, 19 years old. Those folks either had to be really close with God or didn't know what in the world they were doing to call a 19-year-old as their pastor. But but I love the church. Um, it's been central in my life. Anita, that's often her story too. We both met working at a Christian camp that was sponsored by an association of local churches. Now, uh, she and I both are raising our two children to love the church and be involved in the life of the church. You say, why are you saying all this? Because listen, I don't understand those who claim to love Jesus but don't have a love for his church. There was a time when coming to Christ meant coming to his church. As far back as the New Testament, salvation brought you into union with the visible local expression of the body of Christ. Becoming a child of God also meant entering into fellowship with the people of God. And nowadays, the emphasis is often on a believer's personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Now listen, it ought to be. You ought to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Your parents' faith is not sufficient. For, you've got to have personal faith yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. But at the same time, your faith is personal. That does not mean that your faith is private. It does not mean that God has called you to live a privatized Christian life. But to be a Christian means that you've been brought into the family of faith and regular active participation in the local fellowship is the expression of this faith in Jesus Christ. And so you go through the New Testament and you'll find that most of the letters of the New Testament were addressed to local churches uh, in cities like the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the Galatian churches. Even the pastoral epistles were written by the Apostle Paul to church leaders like Timothy and Titus. And so the church is not God's plan B. The church is not something that's optional for the Christian life, but it's something that God intends to be central to your life as a believer. The church is the bride of Christ. And to be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ means that you are a part of his bride. Folks, we're not in the church this morning. We are the church. Amen. 
We are the body of Christ. And it's a very important thing. So you look here at this church, the first church in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted. Uh, that's a very interesting word that's used there in verse number 42. Uh, it means that uh, there was a new habitual devotion that now became characteristic of the lives of these believers. They became devoted to the fellowship. So participation in the church. Uh, why were they devoted to the fellowship? Why were they devoted to one another? Well, let me show you a few reasons. Uh, to begin with, it was because they all shared in a common authority. They shared in a common authority. The first thing that the Bible says they became devoted to was the teaching of the apostles. Their life came under the authority of apostolic teaching. Their life came under the authority of the word of God. And by the way, the Bible says that the church has been built upon the, the foundation of the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, and Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. He's the one that holds it all together. And so these new believers now are placing themselves under the authority of those apostles. It means that they're under the authority of God's chosen representatives through whom the Holy Spirit inspired to give doctrine and instruction to the church. And that body of teaching now is contained uh, in the 27 books of the New Testament. The teaching of the apostles, the doctrine of the apostles, that's what we find in the New Testament. But the point is, to be in the church means that you've come under the authority of the Word of God. You don't stand over the Word of God, you're under the Word of God. There are a lot of people who want to be in the church, but they want to place themselves over the Word of God, and they want to make the Word of God say what the Word of God does not say. They want to change God's mind and, and, and explain away clear instruction uh, for how God's designed life to function in His world. And you can rest assured that a person who claims to be a believer, but their life is not in submission to the word of God, let me tell you something, that person doesn't know the God of the Bible. So these believers, they, they are participating in the life of the church, they all share in a common authority, and that authority is the word of the living God. But then notice next, uh, they share in a common identity. They're devoted to the fellowship, as verse 42 says. And the word that's used there is that Greek word koinonia. It's a word that means common. Uh, the New Testament was written not in classical Greek, but it was written in koine Greek, common Greek, street Greek, which I think it's an amazing thing that the New Testament was written in the language that the common man on the street could understand. Not classical uh, Greek, like classical Greek works, but common Greek, street, koine. And that same root is, makes up the word koinonia, the word for fellowship. It just simply means common life, a shared life, a mutual shared participation. That's what fellowship is in the New Testament, which means it's more than just meeting in a building and shaking hands or giving holy fist bumps at the beginning of the service, which by the way, we're all scared of that coronavirus, which is why we can keep on giving those elbow bumps and fist bumps as far as I'm concerned. But shared mutual life, fellowship, that's, that's what fellowship is. 
So shaking hands, greeting one another, being friendly, eating together, these are just minor expressions of fellowship, but fellowship in the biblical sense is something that's much deeper than superficial greetings. It's a shared common life. And the fellowship that we have with one another as believers is directly linked to the fellowship that we have with God. That's the point that the Apostle John makes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That just simply means that it's out of our common fellowship with God that we enjoy fellowship with our brothers and sisters in the faith. We share in a common identity. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God, which means you have more in common with the believer in the room that you may not be physically related to than you do with an unbelieving blood relative in your family. Did you hear what I just said? You have more in common. The reason is because the life of God has come to take up residence in your heart and life just as he has the other believer, which means that you're brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Isn't it an amazing thing that God has placed us in a faith family and all of us are spiritually related to one another and we all share in the common spirit, common life, common fellowship? It's a common identity. And so, listen, that's why when a person gets out of fellowship with God, often the first thing that happens is they get out of fellowship with God's people. You get out of fellowship with God, and the first thing that you know begins to wane is participation in the local church. And often when they get out of fellowship with God's people, it's a sign that they're not walking in close fellowship with God. Because to have a relationship with Jesus Christ is to have a relationship with his church. The New Testament knows absolutely nothing about an individualized, privatized faith that's disconnected from involvement, regular involvement and participation in the local church. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 14, by this we know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. First John gives a series of tests that you can apply to your life to see whether or not you're truly in the faith. And one of those tests is the family test. Do I love the family of God? Do I love the local church? Am I involved in a faith family? Because if I am, and I love the brethren, this is an evidence in my life that I've passed from death unto life. There's been a change take place in me. And it's the spirit of God within me that's creating and producing within me love for God's people. To be in the faith is also to be in the family. Now let me tell you something. Let me show you something for just a second. Keep your finger here in Acts chapter two. Go to, go to Mark's gospel chapter 10. You know in Mark chapter 10, you've got the story of the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus who's eager, uh, who wants to inherit eternal life And Jesus basically puts his finger on the issue in this young man's life. He was a covetous man, a greedy man. He wasn't willing to part with any of his possessions. His possessions were more important to him than following the Lord Jesus. And in response to that, Jesus tells his disciples that it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed by this, and, and uh, Jesus said to them, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They ask him, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then in verse 28, it's Peter who began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Now listen to what Jesus says to Peter in response. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is none who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, Jesus is just simply saying, yeah, you turn your back on the world to become my disciple, but let me tell you something, you get far more than the world could ever give you. You get forgiveness, you get eternal life, you get a place in the kingdom, but Jesus says it's even, you get brothers and sisters in the faith. You now have family in the, now listen, that may not mean a whole lot to us who don't really suffer a lot of persecution in our context, but it meant a lot in an Eastern context where to publicly identify with Jesus Christ meant being disinherited. Uh, It meant having your family turn their backs on you because no longer were you honorable. That's what happens all over the world even now. There are believers in persecuted context who pay the ultimate price who were ostracized by their family, kicked out of their family, sought uh, after their family, even, even put to death. But Jesus says you get far more by being his disciple than you would remaining in the world. Now some of you can ad- identify with that. I, I think about people in our fellowship uh, that move here. They don't have family here. They don't have ties here. Maybe work has brought them uh, here to this particular area. You know what brought me and Anita to High Point, North Carolina? It was the call of God to shepherd this flock, this church. Others of you have relocated here from other places around the country, and you've got family uh, in other places. The first thing that you did was to try to find a fellowship to get plugged into. Because as a believer, you knew that you could go to the family of God and you could have close relationship. I think about people that are outside of the family of God that don't know our God. People around us who are lost and they're turning to all kinds of things to try to satisfy an itch and a yearning in their soul that only Jesus himself can satisfy. And that relational element often gets satisfied. God places us into the family of faith. That's why it's so important for you to be involved in a Sunday school class or a small group. Absolutely imperative. That's why it's so important for those of you who are teachers and those of you who are leaders to intentionally look for ways where you can shepherd those in your group, where you can pray with them, where you can create opportunities even outside of the gathering to be together because fellowship is important. So these believers, their lives are submitted to a common authority. Uh, Their characteristic, um, there's a common identity that's characteristic of their life. But then notice third, they give themselves to common responsibility. Participation in the church means that we have a shared responsibility. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And the idea is they had a corporate responsibility to one another. And if you work your way through the New Testament, you'll frequently come across various one another passages where there are specific instructions that are given to believers to, take, to give priority to the relationships that they have with one another. And these commands cannot be obeyed if a person is not in regular fellowship with a local church. How else can you love one another if you're not involved in one another's lives? How else can you forgive one another if you're not at least living close enough to one another where you get on each other's nerves from time to time? How can you not forsake the assembling of yourselves together? Uh, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 24, that we're to consider one another to stir one another up. That has never been a problem in the Baptist churches that I've served and been a part of. We know how to get each other stirred up. But we often don't stir each other up for the right reasons. We stir each other up for all the wrong reasons. The Bible says stir one another up um, to love and good deeds. We're to have an influence in each other's lives whereby we're holding one another accountable and, and it's for the sake of our witness, for the sake of our spiritual growth, for the sake of our account accountability before God. There are at least 26 of these one another passages all throughout the 27 books of the New Testament the first of which is in John 13 where Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So people ought to look at the way that we relate to one another in the church and say, you know something, there's something different about that group of people. There's something totally different about their life. What is it? It's the shared life. It's the common spirit that's made us a part of the body of Christ. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ that makes all the difference in our lives. So there's common authority, common identity, common responsibility. Let me give you one final thing. Common unity. The Bible says all who believed were together. These believers devote themselves to the fellowship. Fear comes upon every soul as God is at work in their midst. All who believe were together and have all things in common. It's a supernatural togetherness that was being produced by the Holy Spirit. Common unity or community. They were different to be sure. They came from different backgrounds. You remember at Pentecost, there were people in Jerusalem that came from all other different language groups were represented. No doubt there were different uh, ethnicities even represented. But it wasn't their skin color that became the basis of their unity. It was the life of God. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. This became the basis of their, and they were unified. It was a remarkable unity that described this early church. And you know, there's nothing that illustrates the unity that we're to have as believers any better than the Lord's Supper. Did you know that? Did you know that the Lord's Supper is a tangible, visible symbol that really illustrates the unity that we have as brothers and sisters? 
the participation that we have, the common life that we share, the fellowship. In fact, Paul makes this same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a koinia? It's the word for fellowship that he uses. Do we not have a shared participation in the blood of Christ and a shared participation in the body of Christ symbolized by the bread that we break? And Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What an awesome picture it is. In fact, the Lord's Supper is perhaps the clearest visible expression of the price that's been paid that's brought us into fellowship, folks. The death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Aren't you grateful for the blood of Jesus? The body of Jesus? Aren't you grateful that you're a part of the body of Christ? And in this local expression, Green Street Baptist Church, let me ask you this question. Think about this. If every person that made up my church were just like me, would I want to be a part of my church? If every church member were just like me, what kind of church would my church be? Let's get even more personal. If every church member were just like me, what kind of church would Green Street be? Would we be a church under the authority of God's word? Uh, would we be a generous church? If every church member gave the way that I did, could we even support the budget of our church? If every church member witnessed like I did, could we ever anticipate new believers coming to faith in Jesus? If every church member were as friendly as I am, would anybody new be welcomed into our midst? If every church member were just like me, what kind of church would my church be? Now that digs, doesn't it? 